I next chatted with Dr. Loneal about the general findings of the survey and specifically perhaps the greatest gap between the investigators and community oncologists, namely in access to new agents as part of clinical trials. While virtually all the investigators put patients on trials of novel agents, only 28% of oncologists in practice had any patients who received a new agent either directly or by referral in a clinical trial. With a host of new agents with promising rates of activities being reported with increasing frequency, I asked Dr. Loneal if this was just a question of patients in the community setting not being able to help move the field forward, or also maybe foregoing an opportunity to receive a potentially useful treatment. Absolutely. And I think the best example I can tell of this is a patient I'm currently looking after who has 414 positive myeloma and has had this for over 10 years now and has been on APEX, was on the MM009 trial, was on the HSP90 trial, was on an FGFR3 trial, and is now about to go on pomalidomide. And my best guess is the only reason he's been around this long is because of access to these drugs. And, you know, it's actually a little bit disconcerting. I think you make a good point, and perhaps it's not access to agents like desatinib that really make the difference, but access to agents like pomalidomide, carfilzomib, elotuzumab, some of these other antibodies that I think really do have an option of making a big difference. You know, in solid tumors, we're familiar, for example, you know, TDM1 is an agent in HER2-positive breast cancer. There's the PARP inhibitor that mm-hmm. start, you know, and... You know, these agents are not available unless on study, and you can see just from the data that they're offering stuff for patients, and I think you can make a pretty good argument for pomalidomide and carfilzomib in that Mm -hmm. regard right now, I think. Absolutely. No, absolutely, I agree. What about the issue of the induction regimens used in the pre-transplant setting? Seems like there's a lot of heterogeneity there also. For us, it's RVD. And what about the patient at higher risk? Same thing? Same thing. And, you know, when we cross-tabbed the answers to, is what you're doing different? Mm -hmm. For example, 64% of the investigators are generally using a different induction regimen for transplant-eligible patients than they did a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. Most of those were RVD, most of those in terms of switching, some RD, 48% of oncologists using something different. Again, mostly triple therapy. And obviously, that's what you're doing. I mean, when did your practice change off-study in that regard? Well, it probably began when we finished participating in Paul's RVD study. So when that study ended, we just had had such a positive experience with responses on that. And, you know, I mean, I think we've now started to look at the cohort of patients in whom we considered them transplant eligible. They received usually a triplet, but not 100% of the time. We collected their cells and then put them on maintenance instead of taking them immediately to transplant. And we've now got a cohort of over 100 patients like that. We're going to start to look at their PFS and outcomes in that kind of a situation. So hopefully we'll have some data around this concept of timing of transplant before the large trials are completed. And what about in the transplant ineligible patient? What's your induction and has it changed? Well, for us, I think we still favor a melphalan-based approach, either MPT or MPV. So I'm not sure that we've seen a huge amount of change there except to consider the use of either maintenance LEN or the use of maintenance VT, for instance, like in Maria Mateos's abstract, to consider maintenance therapy in those patients because I think the older patients are a little bit more challenging when they relapse. Can you help me understand how you define maintenance in a patient who's not getting transplant? 
So, you know, and this is the same issue that comes up in lymphoma. If they're not in a CR, but you're still giving therapy, is it really ongoing therapy or is it maintenance therapy? To me, it has to do with intensity of treatment. You define a fixed number of cycles of sort of dose-intense therapy, six cycles or eight cycles, for instance. And then beyond that, if you're going to continue with therapy, it's in a less intensive schedule where it's not all the same drugs you were using before. So if that's my classification of maintenance therapy. And what would your therapy be in terms of induction as well as maintenance in a non-transplant situation? So, you know, I think that in many ways depends on risk. For instance, in a high-risk patient up front, I would probably do something like MPV up front. In a standard risk patient, I'd probably consider something like MPT or RD as the initial therapy. And if I'm going to use one of those regimens, for instance, if I use MPT, then I would probably use R as maintenance following that. If I were going to use MPV in a high-risk patient, I might consider a sort of a VT-type maintenance like Maria Mateos described in her abstract. So it really depends on what we're seeing in a given situation. It seems like the overall strategy of systemic management of myeloma is being reconsidered now in this era of enhanced response to novel agents. It's a different mentality in some senses for myeloma, but I think it maybe reflects the question of whether, you know, with more aggressive novel therapies in myeloma, we can impact survival and maybe even maybe cure or at mm-hmm. least functional cure. Yeah, I think you never have a shot at a plasma cell like the first shot. I think that it's clear from all of these high-tech gene sequencing and gene expression profile that even a low-risk patient at first relapse has acquired so many new mutations in their plasma cells that you're never going to get the same response rate with sequential therapy that you will with combination. And I think the combinations obviously have to be rational, they have to be well-tolerated, but that's what's different from the heme stuff as opposed to solid tumors, is there really is synergy when you put an imid and a proteasome inhibitor together. There isn't necessarily when you put carboplatin and taxol or you know something along those lines. You get additive benefit, but not the same magnitude of synergy, I don't think.